Uh, good morning. Oh, what a joy it is for us to meet as God's people on the Lord's Day. It's me again. <laughs> and thanks to Pastor Andrew and the Classic Steering Team for giving me the opportunity to share God's Word this morning. And indeed, it's my joyful privilege for me to share some thoughts, even though I feel inadequate to undertake such a noble task. I only hope and pray that our time together will be meaningful and mutually edifying. So just a quick heads up. About two months ago, after the end of Sexual Ethics series, which was comprehensively preached by all our pastors, Pastor Bevan asked me to share a short devotion with the evening congregation, which I humbly accepted with gratitude. And in God's providence, and for knowledge, it just happened that Andrew was in that evening service as well. And so a couple of days ago, I was pleasantly surprised when I received a phone call from Andrew, who then asked me to consider sharing sort of the same message I'd shared with the evening congregation to a classic congregation as well. Now, I brought that information to you. I'm mindful that there could be one or two people in this service this morning who could have attended that evening service. And so if you happen to be such a precious soul, you'll be listening to me again. <laughs> and I must say that uh, it's not because I couldn't find any new material to preach on, uh, but I'm just being a good old Baptist who is loyal in supporting my fellow elder and my pastor. <laughs> Having said all that, let's turn our attention to the subject of discussion this morning, which is the fragility of life. And so let me invite you to turn with me to the 90th Psalm, and we'll be reading uh, from verses 1 through to 17. Psalms chapter 90, and I'm reading, I'm, I'm reading from NIV. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You will turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, all sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with the morn. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80, if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. It teaches us to number our days aright, and that we may gain a heart 
of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, and that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. And may your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray together, shall we? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. And we thank you that indeed you are a God who honor your name and your word above all else. We pray this morning that, Lord, as we sit to listen to your word this morning, I pray that, Lord, help us to reflect deeply on the things that will be discussing and hearing from your word this morning. I pray that, Lord, you may help me, that we'll be able to speak clearly, and that, Lord, I pray that to make our hearts receptive as we are your word this morning. And that, Lord, at the end of the day, you shall receive all the praise and all the glory, for we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. And now to fully appreciate the relevance and spiritual vitality hidden in the passage of scripture we've just read, and the so-called prayer of Moses, the man of God, I want to draw attention to the outline, or the menu, if I may use the less translingual, for our reflection and brief consideration of Psalms 90. And so this morning, basically, I want to draw attention and this is the outline that I intend to dish out as we consider uh, some observations made by Moses from Psalm 90. So firstly, I want to bring to attention the proclamation of God's wondrous works. The proclamation of God's wondrous works recorded for us from verses 1 to 3. Secondly, I want to bring to your attention the place of time in God's economy. The place of time in God's economy recorded for us verses from verse 4 to 6. Thirdly, I would like to bring to your attention the purity and power of God's wrath recorded for us from verse 7 to 11. And lastly, I'd like to bring to your attention the petition for wisdom and the Lord's favor. The petition for wisdom and the Lord's favor as observed by Moses, and it's recorded for us from verse 12 to 17. So those are the four aspects that I'll use as an outline, or as the main menu, again, if I may use the less language, as it were. But again, before we settle <laughs> to eat and enjoy our main meal, I want to start with the starters. And let me say that we'll be exposed to different images just so to give us added clarity on our quest to understand better this rather fascinating topic of fragility of life and what it entails. And so, let's imagine together for a moment as I invite you to come along with me on the imaginative venture tour across the globe again. 
And the purpose of undertaking such a virtual roadmap is simply to give us added clarity on the issue of fragility of life, but also to prepare us on how to wisely navigate our way forward as we go into the future with a discerning heart, with wisdom and confidence rooted in God's word as we live in these uncertain times. And so imagine with me for a moment, what would you do? If you are driving down the road somewhere along the highway or along the farm near somewhere, going somewhere, and then suddenly you noticed a toddler all by herself walking down in the middle of the road without any evidence of parents being in close proximity or any law enforcing officials like the police nearby. What are some of the thoughts, if I may ask, which could cross your mind immediately you see such a toddler in the middle of nowhere? Here's somebody's in safety. Thank you. <laughs> the police? Where are the parents? Danger? Wow. Thank you for your participation. Indeed. I agree with all the answers given. But I want to submit to you as well that it is not only the defenseless and the innocent and the weak in society like that toddler that I've seen in the slide whose lives are seen as fragile and vulnerable. Sometimes even the smartest, the strongest, the seemingly unsinkable things of the world and even the so-called superpowers get caught off guard and made to feel vulnerable. And so... I would like to have a look at different scenarios uh, just to add clarity uh, on the subject of fragility of, of, of life. Uh, we've all known the African lion. In his mind, he is the strongest and the king of the jungle. And if you have traversed the African savannah, or East Africa, or you, have seen, or you have keen interest in watching documentaries like award-winning National Geographic on your cable networks of your choice. You would have seen that the African, you, have seen, you would have seen the African lion in action. Now, don't ever be deceived by the innocent-looking, majestic African lion. Yes, it looks beautiful, but that thing as both the as both the instinct and the capabilities of being a killing machine and so you can see uh, in the next slide that indeed there there go there we go an african lion in full action in full attacking mode and so any prey that comes in front of the african lion would be tossed however Life sometimes throws some cave balls even to those who thought were the strongest. And so you can see, just to restrict that point, the lion which, which thought he was the strongest is seen here hanging on a tree. And I'm saying, wow, what has changed? I thought the king of the jungle was the strongest, but now he finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time and surrounded by ferocious and the mighty 
hundred buffaloes. I can assure you that that lion, if he really loves his life, he better hang on for his dear life on that tree because if he loses the grip, the king of the jungle will be tossed just as he has been tossing some other animals. And so you can see in the next slide that the full-blown wounded, that the lion is at the mess of a full-blown wounded buffalo. What a great reversal. Such, brethren, is life. And the tables have tamed. The predator has become the prey. And the hunter has become the hunted. The perpetrator has become the victim. And so these, these things does happen. But perhaps we begin to think that such things only happens in the animal kingdom. And let me remind you that the vulnerabilities and fragility of life affects even the best human minds. And so, as you can see in the next slide, that is an image of the Titanic. Keep in mind the year 1912. Because this is an artist's impression of the ship going down. The Titanic was operated by the White Star Line. And on 14th April 1912, the mighty SS Titanic struck an iceberg in thick fog off the coast of Newfoundland. At the time, the Titanic was the largest and most luxurious ocean liner of a time. And the makers of the Titanic thought that she was unsinkable. By the way, I wonder why they called the Titanic using the pronoun she. My best guess is that perhaps or maybe because she was the mother of all sheep. Anyway, in that collision when the Titanic hit or struck the iceberg, five of the Titanic's watertight compartments were compromised and she sunk. And so it has been recorded that out of the 2,228 people on board, only 705 survived. A major cause of the loss of life was the insufficient number of lifeboats she carried. And I told you to keep in mind the year 2000. Because from South African perspective, as I was doing my research, it is interesting, it was interesting to note that a political movement of titanic proportions was also formed right here. And so, there is nothing much that I can say about this political party, because as you know, the veterans, the patrons, and the cadres alike, are all fully persuaded that as long as they don't hit the iceberg yet, as it were, they'll keep navigating around the potential icebergs, such as load shedding, powered by the revolutionary cadres, all the way into the promised land. But for now, there is nothing much that we can say other than to recognize of interest that I, this political movement began way back in 1912 
And because history has been recorded, and because it's still floating, there is nothing much that we can do other than to pray for the leaders of this movement. Because that is what is expected from us as God's people. Now, if the year 1912 seems to be in the far distant past, uh, the September 11 attacks in the United States is yet another tragic reminder of the fragility of life capturing and exposing our vulnerable, even the so-called superpowers, uh, could be. And so what we see now in the next slide, basically are the images of the twin, twin, uh, twin towers at the World Trade Center in the United States and the terrorist attack, that terrible, terrible event. And so, it has been a while now, and yet each time I see these images, it just makes me wonder, and indeed it creates awareness of the fragility of life. And just when, when, and just when the world was thinking that we have peace at last, as a chief disruptor of peace like never seen before emerged first from China, Yuan province, and I'm talking about COVID-19. Now, as instructed by the scientists from the international community, and here at home, we faithfully followed those three simple steps, trying hard to catch it, bend it, and kill it, so they told us, but your this stubborn virus still remains elusive. And so we're all affected by its negative impact. This change and many others in our nation lost some precious, precious souls who succumbed to COVID-19. And all that we can do is that we bless their families and may the Lord continue to allow those precious souls to rest in eternal peace. So as you can see, the global unfolding events which capture the meaning and adds clarity to our understanding of fragility of life are endless. Just last week, Turkey and parts of Syria were hit by the earthquake. And so I've got for you, here are some uh, before and after pictures, visuals, a courtesy of BBC. Again, the paper was simply to uh, try to comprehend uh, and add clarity to the fragility of life. And so, the lesson for us is that when people feel a real sense of danger and vulnerability, especially in light of tragic events, they tend to ask hard questions like, where is God when bad things happen to people? So let us first remind ourselves, brethren, let us remind ourselves that uh, in moments like that, when bad things happen, things happen, especially on a large scale, tragic events on a large scale happens. When people begin to ask, where is God? 
in the midst of all this. And the truth of the matter is that God is still there. Because God is sovereign and is in total control of every situation. And so even when bad things happen, which do not so much focus our eyes on the fog of the tragedies, but rather we must focus our eyes on God, who is eternal and sovereign and is in total control of things. Now, the last picture uh, from the aftermath earthquake of a destroyed church building kind of sends the hidden message of the enduring power of the cross. You can see in the rubble that uh, on the before picture there, uh, you can see, but in the aftermath, uh, in the destroyed building, the, the, the building was extensively damaged, and yet you can see the cross still standing, almost untouched. Sort of sends the hidden message of the enduring power of the cross. The moment I saw that, it reminds me of the words of the Apostle Paul recorded for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where the Bible says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who have been saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. So let us first remind ourselves of what different uh, people uh, from different backgrounds, from different schools of thought and ethnicity and status perceive and understand about this uh, concept or issue of the fragility of life. So what people in general says about the fragility matters because the fragility of life means different things to different people in different contexts. And just so to stress to restrict this point, I have gathered a few uh, statements from people who said something uh, about the fragility of life. Tim Cook from Apple once said, life is fragile. We are not guaranteed a tomorrow, so give it everything you've got. Uh, another one, by the name of uh, Rachel Birmingham, once said, Life is short, fragile, and does not wait for anyone. There will never be a perfect time to pursue your dreams and goals other than right now. Somebody else said, my line of work makes you aware of the fragility of life. You can get up in the morning, eat your cornflakes, blow dry your hair, go to work and end up dead. Another one said, tomorrow is never guaranteed. Everything we have in this world could be taken away in an instant. Somebody else said, life is fragile, but when surrounded by God's presence, we are more than conquerors, therefore we have nothing to fear. <laughs> Sounds like a Christian to me. Somebody else said, life is fragile, 
Never take for granted the people God put in your life. Always make time for them. Keep them close and love them with all your heart. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And when you have the chance, tell and show your loved ones how much they mean to you. Do it. And lastly, somebody said, life is fragile. Under it with prayer. Sounds like somebody from PBC. <laughs> and so, let's now, those are some of the pronouncements uh, which people have said uh, about the fragility of the understanding of the fragility of life. Let me just make a quick uh, comment that now these personal statements from people from different backgrounds and from different ethnicities and from different schools of thought, those personal statements might sound good. But no matter how well these personal statements from some famous people sound, they still remain motivational at base and are mostly driven by positive thinking. They are not inspired at all. And so, to be able to live with the fragility of life, especially in times of difficulties, we need to get encouragement from the authoritative and inspired word of God because in matters of life and death and in matters of faith and practice, only God's word has got the final authority. And so, having looked at what people in general thinks of the fragility of life, now let's look at what the Bible also says about the fragility of life. Now, before we go to what the Bible says about the fragility of life, because it says quite a lot, I think we need to understand why it is important to know what the Bible says about the fragility of life. Now, I believe, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writing are divine rather than human in origin. This is the reason why I take seriously what the Bible says about the fragility of life. And indeed, like I said, the Bible has got a lot to say about the fragility of, of life. And the Bible speaks of life as being like a vapor, it speaks of life as a fading flower or fleeting and so on and so forth. And now, having looked at what you people in general think and understand the fragility of life, and having looked at what the Bible, why it is important to know what the Bible says about the fragility of life. I want to draw attention yet again to the passage which we read earlier on, a prayer written by Moses, the man of God. Now, there are precious insights which could be useful to our walk with God. Now, the passage that was written, was written, which was read for us this morning, was written by, by, by Moses. But who was Moses, one might argue? Who was Moses to claim what he claimed about God in the text which we read earlier on? Well, 
Much can be said about Moses, but we don't have time to unpack his credentials, to unpack his life and his ministry among the people of Israel, except I light some few things. You see, Moses was what theologians called a prototype or a model of Christ to the people of Israel. It was, in many respects, the Lord given to them. He was an intercessor. He was a prophet to them. He was a priest to them. And I must say, he was, he was also a counselor to the people of Israel, although Jethro had to intercede, to interfere, to guide him, because he was overexpending himself in dispensing justice among God's people. So Moses was many things to the people of Israel. He was a lawgiver, he was an intercessor, he was a priest, he was a prophet, he was all that. And indeed, Moses was profoundly used by God in so many, many wonderful ways. You would recall how Moses was given when he was given the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Or you'd recall when Moses was being commissioned by God at burning bush to go to Egypt where the children of Israel were in bondage under Pharaoh. And so when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, as recorded for us in the book of Exodus, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out before of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go! I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses, who wrote the passage of Scripture, the prayer that we are uh, studying this morning, was profoundly used by God. Not only in those instances, it was also used. Remember, when he went to Egypt, in Egypt was when he accomplished and he was honored by God. And he was laid, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. So Moses, the man that we're talking about, when we refer to the passage of scripture in Psalm 90, with respect to uh, the proclamations that he observed, the proclamation of God's wondrous works, which he observed in verses 1 to 3, Moses was speaking 
both out of his levelish, out of revelation, but also Moses was speaking out of his deep personal experience with God. Moses had known and experienced God in profound ways. Therefore, in the opening three verses of Psalm 90, Moses was acknowledging that God, he was acknowledging God as the one to be worshipped above anything else. For the simple truth that God has created all things. Furthermore, Moses acknowledged that this God, whose personal name was Yahweh, is the sustainer of all humankind. He is the God who sustains us physically. He is the God who sustains us spiritually. And is the God who sustains us in any other way possible by carefully, by faithfully caring for us and providing for our daily needs. For me, what is even more profound is that in spite of the fact that this God is the omnipotent one, the all-powerful God, and that is the omnipresent, the one with the capacity and the ability to be everywhere at one place. That is the omniscient one, the one who is all-knowing. And yet, this same God longs to dwell among his people. That is profound. No wonder, no wonder the psalmist was overwhelmed by the goodness of the Lord and therefore uttered those precious words recorded for us in Psalm Chapter 8, he said, Lord, you have recorded for us in Psalm 8 that our Lord, our majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the Lord of your fingers, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Psalm 8 verses 1 to 4. And so, having looked at God's proclamation of God's wondrous works, then Moses turned his attention to the place of time in God's economy, recorded for us from verse 4 to 6. Basically, Moses turned his attention to time and how fast it runs. Moses began by making a contrast between God's eternal nature and our short span of life here on earth. He observed, among other things, that our days are full of trouble and sorrow. And yet, we are assured of eternal security beyond, beyond our short days here on earth. And so, the good thing about this observation is that, yes, even though the length of our days is short and limited here on earth, even though the length of our days is 70 years or 80 years, if we have the strength, yet the span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. And yet, we do not need to be depressed about that reality, because we know, like the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, that we do not lose heart. Therefore, we do not lose heart. 
Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Moses, having looked at the wonderful, wonderful works of God, and wonderful works of God recorded for us in verses 1 to 3, and having looked at the place of time in God's economy recorded for us in verses 4 to 6, then Moses turned his attention to the wrath of God. You saw from my outline that I talked about the third aspect that I want to uh, share with you, the purity and power of God's wrath, verses 7 to 11. And so verses 7 to 11 is about the way in which we live because of God's wrath due to sin and its case in all humans. And yet it is interesting and encouraging for me to know that when God unleashes his wrath upon his people, he does it in love and with a pure heart. When God unleashes his wrath upon his people, he does it in love and with a pure heart. He doesn't do it just to punish us, to show off that I'm the all-powerful God, no, he always does it, does it with a view to seek and save the lost. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, that but God demonstrates his own love for us in this way, in this. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you can see that indeed the purity and God, the purity and the power of God's wrath is objective. In other words, when God does it, he does it with a view of restoring his children back to himself because of his wonderful, wonderful love. As Paul demonstrated quite clearly, that it was God, in fact, who took the initiative by demonstrating his love towards us, that while we're still sinners, ungodly, and, and enemies with him, he decided to demonstrate his love for us by sending his son, Jesus, who came and died for us. God, right from the beginning, from the foundation of the earth, had a redemptive plan of salvation for mankind, not to punish us, but to save us. For we know that indeed the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come to judge the world at a time, but he came that through him the world may be saved. And so having looked at the purity and power of God's wrath in verses 7 to 11, finally Moses turned his attention to the petition for wisdom and the Lord's favor. And so in verse 12, Moses, we read him recording saying, Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now there are so many things that can be said just concerning this this text. But I think the sense that we are getting is that as Moses turned 
is attention in seeking the spirit of wisdom and revelation from God by petitioning God. That's why in verse 12 we read, it teaches us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think as we spend our life in the Lord, our focus and pleasure is derived from the worship of one true God. Wisdom dictates that. We worship one true God. And as we be worship the one true God, it results in us experiencing the wonderful favor of God. And that's why somewhere near the end of the passage, he said, establish the works of our hands. And yes, establish the works of our hands. When God is pleased with his people, he blesses the work of his hands. In summary, brethren, this text, it teaches us that wisdom comes from keeping in mind that life is fragile and limited. Therefore, our meaning in life comes not through what we do, but through the one for whom and through whom we do it. Apart from God, we fall under his wrath, and our few days are passed in futility, soon forgotten. However, through his mercy, our lives have been redeemed from the curse of sin because of God's redemptive plan of salvation for all mankind. And so this prayer of Moses, the man of God that we've been considering this morning, recorded for us in Psalms 90, was never about Moses per se. And he knew it himself. It was meant to point us to Jesus Christ. And so as I begin to wrap up, I leave you with some wise words from, from J.I. Parker who gave us some insights about wisdom and also make a reference to uh, Thomas Brooks who talked about uh, some wonderful and profound words. J.I. Parker said, There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God. And God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. As Christians, we die well. We are fully assured of the eternal security. And that in spite of the uh, tragedies, in spite of the troubles and sorrows that we may encounter, but we are fully persuaded of the eternal security in God. In other words, Christians die well. And the words of Thomas Brooks, like I said, this passage of scripture that I've been studying points out to Jesus. And I want to echo the words of Thomas Brooks who said, if we have Jesus, we have all things in Christ. Christ is all things to a Christian. If we are sick, Jesus is a physician. If we're thirsty, Jesus is a fountain. If our sins trouble us, Jesus is our righteousness. If we stand in the need of help, Jesus is mighty to save. If we fear death, Jesus is life. If we're in darkness, Jesus is light. If we are weak, Jesus is strength. If we're in poverty, Jesus is plenty. If we desire heaven, Jesus is the way, the only way. 
Therefore, the soul cannot say this I would have and that I would have. But having Jesus, he has all he needs, eminently, perfectly, eternally. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. I pray that now, Holy Spirit, may continue to minister to our hearts as we meditate on this word. And as we go, Lord, bless us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.